Hello, family. You're tuned in to The Real Rx, a platform created by five uniquely talented physicians with one main mission to educate and empower our communities to do and feel better. Here is where we have real talk about trending health topics and your problems or issues in health and even the healthcare system. We'll take you behind the brains of an ophthalmologist, family doctor, ER doctor, OBGYN, and healthcare advocate to discuss the real things that ail you. Join us for another episode of The Real Rx. Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Real Rx. We're here to talk about your back to school checkup today. But before we jump into the topic, let me get all of our fabulous docs to introduce themselves so that you know who's giving you your advice. We'll start with Dr. Nicole. Hey, you guys, it's Dr. Nicole. I'm your board certified pediatrician private health advocate, and the CEO of Your GPS Doc. I help family caregivers do three things, believe overwhelm, reclaim their time, and ensure their loved ones receive appropriate and effective health care. Great. Thank you, Dr. Nicole. How about Dr. Felicia? Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Felicia Sumner. I'm a board-certified family medicine physician and wellness strategist. I am dedicated to breaking down the massive wall between doctors and patients so you can live your best life because you deserve to be well, whole, energized, and loving life. Great. Thank you, Dr. Felicia. Dr. San? Hey, it's Dr. San, your board-certified obstetrician-gynecologist who's here to help moms navigate through pregnancy, labor, and delivery, and also help moms achieve mommy nirvana. Awesome. Thank you, Dr. San. And I am Dr. Anika, the vision doctor. I lead you through your eye exam to allow you to see things more clearly because your success starts with your vision. And if you are a frequenter of our show, you know we're missing one of our fabulous docs. Dr. Kimberly Brown, after working very hard this week, is preparing for some me time. And she had to be away, but we definitely miss her and we'll miss her input on this topic today. But she'll be with us again next week. So most of you probably are parents or at some point have been a parent and you remember that busy back to school time where kids had to have clothes and they had to have school supplies and everything had to be just so for the first day of school. And we are here to remind you in this episode that there are other things we'd love for you to think about as your child goes back to school, namely health screenings and health exams that will allow them to have a much better school year. So let's start with Dr. Felicia, our family medicine doctor. So she can tell us some things that she would suggest we have our kids undergo before their first day of school. Sure, so I'll come at it from um, the more teenage-ish perspective. Uh, I know Dr. Nicole um, has possibly some insight as a pediatrician as well, but in general um, from from you know five-year-olds on up when you're headed back to school, it's important to take a look at a few things. Uh, most schools do require a physical um, to some extent uh, with your doctor. If not, depending on the state, it's still a good idea to have your child check in with their doctor at least once a year um, to make sure that they're up to date with vaccines, 
um, to make sure that uh, they are growing appropriately, that they're meeting what we call developmental milestones, um, you know, that they're talking the way that they should, that they're interacting with their friends socially the way that they should. Um, so those are often the things that we look for when someone's headed back to school. Uh, we also think about, you know, if they're going to be playing sports, uh, to, to screen them for certain conditions that could become uh, more concerning when they're exerting themselves, especially cardiac-wise. Uh, so we take a good listen to their heart. Um, for some people, if we hear anything funky, we may need further testing, like an EKG or even more than that. Um, there is some debate, actually, as to with kids, young, young boys, um, whether or not a testicular exam is required. Um, I, I think um, maybe Dr. Nicole, you can highlight that a little bit if possible. But for me, from what I'm aware of, um, the most up-to-date recommendations are that you don't need to do an exam for a hernia or anything of that sort unless a patient is having symptoms. And that's always been kind of controversial um, when I have a kid come into the office for their sports physical. Uh, so those are the kind of things that we tend to look out for. And then a lot of it's social, just speaking about, you know, their behaviors, because depending on what age they are and what grade they're going to, they're going to be introduced to some things uh, that they haven't been before, um, such as peer pressure, SEX, uh, drugs, alcohol, things of that nature. So um, it's important that your child uh, has a good relationship with their doctor and a comfortable one so that they can speak openly about those sorts of things, um, especially if for some reason they may not be able to confide in of their parent because they may be embarrassed or whatever the situation may be. I absolutely love those points you hit. We have all heard about these young men, mostly young men, who are out on a basketball court or on a football field and all of a sudden just drop dead. And it is one of the saddest things to hear. Um, I, won't, I don't want to lead our audience to believe that every single one of these kids, their, their issue could have been picked up on an exam because sometimes it just can't. Um, but many times right. it can, especially with a good physician who is really paying attention um, and not just going through the motions. So I'm so happy you mentioned that because if you have a child that's playing sports and is not already getting routine physical examinations, um, taking them to these little clinics that do sports physicals, I don't, I'm not feeling comfortable with that because if you have 50, 60 little kids or, or teenagers lined up, how much of an exam are you doing? So it's so good to have a family physician that you can trust, that you know is in sync with your family and cares about your family. They have a relationship beyond just doing an exam. Um, and the peer pressure is critical. I remember growing up having the exact same doctor till I was 18 years old. And I was very comfortable. It was a man, but I was very comfortable with him because I saw him all the time. Mm -hmm. So I feel like we've gotten away from some of that these days and the consistency and care. Um, Dr. Nicole, do you want to weigh in? Yeah, I'm sorry. Yes, I have to weigh in. Um, those were excellent points. Yeah, I just want to piggyback about the whole sports physicals. First, can we have a moment of silence for every pediatrician in America and every family physician? Y'all, this is the roughest time of year. <laughs> can, I, can, I, can I just apologize for all the slap moms? 
who's gonna run in the day before school starts and be like <laughs> let, me, let me just say this unfortunately this episode is gonna air in august so it is already too late to save the pediatricians and the family doctors so maybe next year we'll record this in june y'all i'm talking to the moms for just a second y'all already know that your child needs that checkup to play on that football team, that basketball team, field hockey, lacrosse, whatever. We be busy, Dr. Nicole. We be busy. Oh, we be busy. That's <laughs> a hand clap. Yes, that gets a hand clap. We I be busy. Stop it. <laughs> we be busy. We be tired. Listen, we be put, put us on your schedule in May, early June. But I mean, I just remember, like, seriously, I still have like PTSD over the, my primary care days because the parents will wait until literally the absolute last minute and then be angry. And where I worked, you know, there was a policy that we did not complete forms during the visit. And that was a policy. It wasn't my policy. That was the clinic's policy. And so parents would come racing in there, you know, two days before football practice started and then be angry that they couldn't walk out of that visit with a completed sports physical saying that their child, you know, could participate. So that's one thing. I just really want to impress upon the parents to please try to plan ahead. And I know it's difficult, but try to plan ahead next year <laughs> with those physicals. But the other thing is just to piggyback about these assembly line sports physicals. Um, you know, like, like Dr. Anika mentioned, you know, this, this sudden cardiac death, among adolescents is just devastating. And while, you know, there's a lot of controversy about whether we can even predict some of those events and whether, you know, everybody should get EKGs and things like that, but nobody knows your child better than the doctor that's been taking care of them. So I know that we are in a microwave society where everyone wants things right now, and it's much easier for you to just go to that local urgent care or go to that assembly line clinic and you know where they're seeing hundreds of kids a day but you want the doctor that knows your family history who can you know interpret that history and decide whether your child may be at risk for certain heart conditions and you know they can no notice those subtle differences in your child's um, vital signs you know maybe they can look and see that your child's blood pressure was you know 10 points lower last year and these are things that, you know, somebody who's never seen your child before is not going to pick up on. So if at all possible, schedule these appointments with your child's primary care physician. You just made the point I was, I was going to make, Dr. Nicole. I have a telemedicine company. That's why I wasn't on for last week's episode. I was there giving a lecture about telemedicine. And as much as I believe in telemedicine, that is absolutely one of the shortcomings. And I do not try to gloss over that at all because convenience should never be more important than consistency, consistent care. Um, and so telemedicine has a lot of little kinks to work through like that until we figure out how to have some sort of universal record that everyone can access to make sure that the care is not just convenient but consistent across the board. So that's a great point, Dr. Nicole. Thanks for bringing that up. Dr. Sand. But you know what, Anika, I wanted to say one thing as far as, you know, the physicals and things like as, you know, as a mom, you know, speaking from the perspective of, you know, you want your children to be happy. And if you see your child is really excelling in a sport or they want to be in a sport and things like that, you know, I get that from a mom perspective, but 
as a parent, you know, you hear these stories of, cause I, you know, I've sat down with them, you know, black, white, Asian, and moms who kind of jokingly say like, oh, you know, I just get somebody to do a quick physical on my kid, knowing or unknowing that their child, you know, might have an issue that would stop them from actually playing a sport. And, you know, they get somebody, like y'all said, to sign off a piece of paper, you know, just, or they'll say, you know what, they didn't even listen to my kid's heart. I just need them to sign this paper. And they sign it. And, you know, thank God, I don't know any of these moms personally who've had a tragic event to happen to their child. But when I was in I was just starting college and this guy who was one year behind me, um, who was in my, um, what you call it, my city that I grew up, uh, we actually went to uh, middle school together and he was one of those boys who dropped dead on the field. Wow. He did. And his abnormality could have been picked up in a simple physical, but he did. He literally dropped, and I, I rem- I'm not going to call his name on here, but I just remember that happening. And like I said, every year these deaths do happen and it makes me sometimes think like did somebody know that this was what was going on you know did mom not understand you know the physical that their child was or wasn't getting you know I always think of those things but then my heart goes to the mom who knows they have a child and really really wants to play and you think it's not going to happen to me not going to happen to my child. You know, I know their doctor told them that they can't do these particular activities, but, you know, it's not going to happen to my kids. So, you know, I can't stress enough to, you know, really take your child's medical exam and medical history serious because I can't imagine burying one of my kids. Like that is something that I cannot imagine doing. And as much as I know my son loves sports, or he loves every sport, football, basketball, like anything that his dad is watching. I, poor kid to watch golf, his dad is watching it. But um, I know he loves it. If any physician ever tells me that my child has a, uh, some type of disorder that he can't play, guess who's going to be a coach when they grow up? He will. Like, he's just not going to play. I'm not going to put my child's life in danger just so he could be, you know, some superstar. He's probably not going to be because statistics just aren't there. But so just take it seriously, moms. That's just what I want to stress. Like, make sure your child is getting the proper exam. Like, don't overstep steps just because your child really wants to play basketball this year because it could be their last game. So I just really wanted to say that from a mom perspective. And, as, and just to um, highlight real quick what a proper exam, quote unquote, might look like. I mean, every physician has their own technique with regards to um, how they might investigate or detect a cardiac murmur, um, which is what we're listening for um, when we are screening for this particular condition that can cause, you know, these sudden cardiac deaths. Um, on the basketball floor or track field, et cetera. Um, A lot of doctors will take a listen to the heart, but it's also important to do maneuvers that can possibly bring the murmur to light um, if your ears aren't the best, because that's all we're using. That's all we have to be able to detect these things. So especially in a clinic where there's 60 other loud kids in the next room, I find it very difficult to be able to, you know, to detect something like that. But um, when, when we are listening for a murmur, so aside from the doctor listening to your child's heart, um, a lot of times they'll have them do something that'll kind of increase some of the blood flow or pressure to that area. So they'll ask them to kind of bear down like they're having a bowel movement or bend down like squat like a duck or something like that. And those things will help 
the doctor hear the murmur better. They may ask them to grip their hands so to see if the murmur gets, you know, more quiet. So those are the kind of things that you should be looking out for your doctor or the pediatrician, family medicine doctor doing um, to really detect these sort of things. If they're not, it's quite possible that they're kind of going through the motions, sad to say, and they might not pick up something like this. And as Dr. Nika said, it's not always picked up. It's sometimes it's literally impossible to be picked up, but for your doctor to do their due diligence is really important. And I guarantee you they're not doing those maneuvers in the CBS that's doing sports physicals. So just keep that in mind. It is yeah, more than about getting this child ready to play sports because the four of us can definitely attest that there are other ways to help have your child's education paid for. So make sure they're getting their books. All right. Because mm -hmm. I can I, tell y'all right now, I can't play not one sport, y'all. I can't play. My siblings are sports, but even down to my sister, they can play sports. Y'all, they would just tell me like, is Sandlery coming so she can cheerleader y'all that's all I could do and I can't even do professional <laughs> cheerleading that's just me screaming uh, so there's other ways to get your education paid yes. for than sports it definitely is so I would be remiss if I didn't talk about vision at all because it all starts there so many kids are labeled as underperformers or they are not trying they're just lazy this that or the other and do you know there's a large percent of these children who just can't see? And if you can't see, it's very difficult to learn, to engage. For a second, moms who are listening and dads, if you're listening, imagine going to your job and being expected to perform and you are only seeing half as well as you see now. Could you do it? Could you meet the expectations of your supervisors? You probably couldn't. And we're asking children a lot of the time, to do this at school, to learn concepts that are totally foreign to them without being able to completely engage because their vision is compromised. So just a, a couple of statistics, I don't wanna bore you with a lot, but less than 15% of preschool children even get an eye exam. That's less than 15%. And that's the age that we want to figure out whether a child has unequal vision are their eyes turning in or out? Do they have crossed eyes, as we call it? Um, the, that's our time to pick that up and to fix it because once you reach the age of eight, and it doesn't take long to get there, mamas, you know that that time flies. It's very difficult to get vision back if it has not been developed, balanced and normally in both eyes. And so you will then end up with a child who has one strong eye and one quote unquote weak eye uh, for the rest of their lives. And so they're going to have to struggle with that in everything they do from thereafter. And less than 22% of kids even get a screening examination. A screening exam is very different from an eye exam. And I want to make sure that I make that point too. If you go to your pediatrician's office or your family doctor's office and they have your child stand on the line and read a chart at the far end of the wall, that is a vision screening exam. It lets us know if it's done correctly that the vision in both eyes is equal. What it doesn't let us know is about the health of the eye. And that's the importance of having an eye exam. So this week, two days ago, I went and I always go with my girls. I went with them and we all three had eye exams. That's what we try to do each year. I have my oldest daughter is nearsighted. She wears glasses. My youngest daughter does not wear glasses, but 
we all go together because I want that to become a habit for them uh, as they grow up. And I want to make sure there are no issues that will hinder their learning um, each day at school. So the importance of good vision in being a great student cannot be overemphasized. Um, Dr. Sand, what are, what are your thoughts on bringing teenage girls, middle school, high school girls in for annual exams? What, are, what, is the, um, what does ACOG say about that? Well, can I ask a quick question real quick as far as eyes? Do they still, do people still go into schools to do eye exams? I know at LJ's um, and now Lola's um, daycare, once a year they have someone to come in and kind of do like a visual check. But I remember when I was young in elementary school, we used to actually have an what I think I remember like an ophthalmologist would come in and do like an eye test um, for us. Do they still do that? Because, you know, my baby he just started you know, kindergarten going to first grade. So I just didn't know if that was still in the schools. Do y'all know? Only in low income areas at this point is where you're seeing okay. kids who are more likely to fall off the grid and not get annual exams and vision screenings, things like that. We have some nonprofits who are trying to reinstitute that, but still their goal is primarily low income um, communities so that we can try to catch kids who may not have the opportunity mm. to ever see an eye doctor otherwise. And so, so good. Yeah, that people, is good. Are, people are anticipating that pe that most people are doing what they're supposed to be doing. And right. if you, I'll be honest with you, I'm gonna put y'all on the spot for 2.5 seconds and then I'll let you off the hot seat. Oh, Everybody no. is a mama on here right now. Everybody, all of us are moms except for Dr. Kimberly. Um, so right now, all of us are mamas. When is the last time your kids had an eye exam? Mm -mm. So, uh, this is no, well, we get, we do get ours. This is Dr. Nicole. We get ours every year, um, mainly because myself and my younger daughter, you know, we wear glasses and contact lenses. So I'm going to be, I'm going to be very honest with you, Dr. Nika. Pretty much the only reason we go every year is because we need that new prescription. Because, you know, you can't even get new contact lenses if you have an expired <laughs> prescription. So I'm going to be very honest and say that that has been the motivation behind being consistent. My oldest daughter doesn't really have, well, she didn't, she just started wearing glasses. But before that, she didn't have any eye issues. So I'll be honest, after she hit like 18, mm -hmm. I kind of let her do her own thing. You know, she, I felt like it was, I hate to say this, but. I felt like it was kind of a waste of money to keep having her go every year because her, she had 20-20 vision, but now she doesn't have 20-20 vision, but she's doing, you know, she's paying for her own eye exam. But if we were not eyeglass wearers and contact lens wearers, it's probably something that would have slipped off of my radar. I'm going to be honest. You're the majority. You're the majority. And actually, after your child gets to be 18 and they've had consistently good vision, you can stretch out their eye exams. They can have an eye exam every two to four years at that oh, point. So what you were doing is exactly right. But my, the whole concept of my company for telemedicine came about because people who don't wear contacts or glasses may go long periods of time without ever hang, having an eye exam. And then you have That's an eye issue and you're like, where do I go next? Where do I go next? That's definitely. As far as my kids, um, his um, to see an ophthalmologist, my kids have not seen an ophthalmologist ever, and they actually do need to go, but his, um, their pediatrician does like this eye thing, this little machine thing. I'm so bad. I don't even know what this machine does, but they uh -huh. do it, and it measures something, 
and then they get a printout and they'll give it to me and just be like, oh, you know, you need to have your child follow up or the child doesn't need to follow up. So um, Lola just recently went within the last week or two and it said that she had an astigmatism. Am I saying that right? Yes, you are. And so she needs to have a follow-up. So I was going to take her and LJ um, to see an ophthalmologist just to make sure that because I have to wear glasses, my husband has to wear glasses, contacts, so obviously we're a blind family. And so they're probably going to end up needing something at some point, too. Yeah, they won't, they won't tell you they can't see. That's the hard part. Right, you're right. I didn't even think about that. I, um, they just I, I think it was like third grade, personally. I was having like really bad headaches. And at third grade, like I couldn't even, I was seven. I couldn't really even make sense of what that pain really was and it took me a while to even voice that to my own mother um but my grades started to slip and i think that that was kind of like the red flag for them um that we've got to investigate a little more and i just needed glasses and now i'm blind as a bat so i don't know how children who can't see very well can function because i can't even get out of my bed without finding my glasses so i i wholeheartedly agree and thanks for the reminder Dr. Anika I think we're a little past due so we will take the kids to the ophthalmologist next week <laughs> yay so I, there's a couple other issues later we're going to move on from vision you know I could talk about it all day there's a couple issues so Dr. Sain I do want you to talk to our audience about GYN exams is before school a great time to schedule them so that there is a pattern and consistency when do they even start to need them at what age what's the recommendations these days um so really and truly the recommendation um you know like I, I love moms who are very very proactive but I've had so many moms come in with their 13 14 15 year old and just like give her a pap smear and I'm like no can't have pap smear <laughs> that young and they're like why I'm like well because the recommendations for pap smears these years um this is now 21 years old so they don't need a pap smear until 21 years old but if your child has any issues like painful menses pelvic pain um things like that then of course you can bring them in a little bit earlier um as far as just bringing your child in at 13 14 years old just to see a gyn it's really not necessary it's really not necessary at that young age they definitely need to be seeing their pediatrician every year just for a regular checkup but as far as them needing a gyn if they're not really having any gyn issues then there's really no need for them to actually come um and see me it's not really until they start having um like you know gyn issues bleeding you know abnormal discharge things like that now i will say you know sadly which you know i hope a lot of our viewers don't have to um you know deal with this is if your child um like you know has been you know, sexually assaulted, um, you know, if you have a child that's um, had to deal with like sexual trafficking and things like that, mm -hmm. then of course we do want to see these young ladies. They do actually end up needing a pap smear a little bit earlier just because their bodies, um, their cervixes have been exposed, you know, possibly exposed to things like HPV um, and high risk strains of HPV continuously and you know it can actually lead to um cervical cancer now we have not had cervical cancer um under the age of 21 so that's why the age is actually 21 years old but there are outliers there are situations to where you should really bring your child in and um you know one good example is you know never to actually assume what's going on because i had this one patient who brought her daughter in 
and um, she, she wanted her daughter to have a pap smear. And she just kept saying, Dr. Gordon, I want maybe to have a pap smear. And I was like, no, your baby's not having a pap smear today. And I was like, oh, well, let me give you some examples of why your child would need a pap smear. And I was like, you know, if your child has been, you know, involved in sexual trafficking and, you know, prostitution, if she's had a high number of sexual partners. And so I looked at this young lady and I was like, so, you know, tell your mom how many sexual partners that you've had. Because she obviously had already had um, sex. And yeah, it was so funny, y'all. I, I just, I was dying on the inside as a mom. And she pulled out her little fingers and she was like, one, two, three, four, five. Y'all, we got to like 10. And I was like, okay, this totally backfired. So I'm like mad at myself because I was looking for the young lady to be like one or two of you. And she, when she got to the 10, I was like, okay, do we need a pap smear? And so then, you know, I got the mom from the room and I just spoke to her to make sure she was so young to make sure that this wasn't anything that she was being forced, you know, rape, you know, molestation, like what was going on with her, what's going on in her life. So it ended up being a whole long conversation. But, you know, in that situation, you know, I honestly went to my older partner just to make sure I was like, should I do a pap smear on this young lady? I was like, because, you know, I've been taught, you know, it said that unless they have certain lifestyles or things that happen to them, they should get it. I was like, but now I'm kind of stumped. I was like, because I wasn't expecting this young girl to actually say that. So, you know, there are different situations to it. So I don't want to say, you know, absolutely never get a pap smear under the age of 21. But, you know, there are instances to where your child may actually need a pap smear, a pelvic exam, things like that under the age of 21. But really and truly, they don't. Um, need a pap smear or pelvic exam unless they have any issues. Um, I always tell my girls that are going to college to, you know, come to me so we can start talking about birth control. You know, I'm not, you know, I've been in college before, so I'm not going to be all naive and be like, oh, you know, she's going to be a virgin until she gets married at 50. That's the requirement for my kids. Um, <laughs> so, um, so I'm like, you know, let's come in, let's talk about birth control. Like, you know, are you already sexually active? Do you plan on being sexually active? How mature are you? How responsible are you? I'm not responsible with birth control, y'all. I swear, if it wasn't something called Morena, I would be on baby number 12 by now. And so I tell them that. I'm like, I'm not going to take a pill every single day. How do I expect you to take a pill every single day? You have these early morning classes. You know, you're out on the yard. You're having fun. You know, I don't expect you to do it at your young age. So let's talk about birth control, Nuvering, IUDs, Nexplanon, you know, Depo-Pavir. Vera. Let's talk about these things. And I do have a um, group of young ladies who do come see me every summer. I just know they're coming. Like I literally look forward to them. I'm like, oh, it's almost time for school. I'm expecting these young ladies to come. And they come. They really do come. And we talk about, you know, college and how are they doing and, you know, do they need birth control? Are we going to re-up their birth control? Are we going to change their birth control? You know, and we do deep conversations about, you know, how is it, you know, with relationships on the yard? Like, do you feel comfortable talking to, you know, men? Do you feel comfortable talking to women? Because some of my um, patients, you know, they are, you know, bisexual or identify as lesbian and things like that. So we have those conversations because I tell people, like, I'm seeing like some people's mom, sister, auntie. And so they just feel comfortable having that relationship. So I I push moms. I'm just like, you know what, if this conversations that you don't want to have with your kids, you might want to take them to the GYN so they can have those conversations. And of course, those conversations will stay within our walls, but at least you know somebody is having them if you're not, because you don't want the wrong person to be having a conversation with your child. So 
yeah, definitely, you know, to go back to school, my college girls, you know, definitely come in to make sure that you're, um, that everything is where, you know, in place, your birth control, if you need it, your periods are fine, you don't have pelvic pain, discharge and all that stuff is um, actually taken care of. My younger girls, you know, guard is still, we can talk about that, um, you know, abnormal bleeding, you know, before you go back to school, how to, you know, pads and tampons, you know, how to deal with that in school. So, you know, don't leave your GYN out of the conversation, basically, when it's time to go back to school. We have a lot, you know, we can talk to these young girls about. I, I just want to clarify something, Dr. Sanchez. You know, you mentioned with the younger girls, like sex trafficking and abuse and assault, but our kids are having sex, you know, at very young ages. So, I'm delivering them. They absolutely are. Yeah. So just to clarify for the moms and dads listening, is the outside of the 21 year old for pap smears should um at the time when, when should the a, a girl see a gyn is it when she becomes sexually active which could be it, you know, 14 13 15 so really and truly that used to be actually like a guideline to actually start um pap smears i think it was um you know before my time um, I can't remember. I think it was like a year after their first sexual <laughs> encounter, then they needed to see um, a GYN. They need to get a pap smear and all of that. And like I said, that's actually changes. 21 years old for everybody, except for certain um, extraneous situations. Um, as far as when a young lady starts having sex, does she need to see a GYN? Not really. Unless you're just, as a parent, not ready to have the conversations. It's not that they need to see me for a specific type of physical and all of that is more so of who's having a conversation with this 13 year old who is doing something like having sex. That is such a big act. It is emotionally, mentally, it's, it's a lot that goes on with having sex. And then it's protecting herself, making sure that she's not getting pregnant, make sure she's not getting STDs, you know, making sure she's feeling comfortable having sex with the person she is versus, well, I feel like it's something I'm supposed to do because everybody else is doing it. I really don't know how to tell people no. You know, now I'm having a discharge and I really don't want to talk about it, you know, because it might be an STD and things like that. So it's like if you're not willing to have the conversation about sex with your child, then they absolutely need to see a GYN. But just because they had sex, it doesn't mean that they just need to come see me for any particular physical, any particular testing, you know, anything like that. I tell women once they're having sex, they only know what they're doing. They don't know what anybody else is doing. They don't know what anybody else has. So they need to get STD testing. That doesn't have to come from me. You know, you can go yeah. to your pediatrician, family medicine physician and get STD testing. Really? It's nothing different that I'm going to do. So they definitely just need to have someone in their corner that they can have these adult conversations with is the biggest thing but just having sex no they don't have to come see me out I, I don't need to know the new tricks so y'all that's what the young kids be doing to me and they put me in such like awkward situations because when they use certain words and like tricks and I'm sitting there feeling like and I'm like well what does that mean girl like help me out <laughs> that's just not I'm, I'm feeling old and I don't want to know you're doing that because you're 15 for heaven's right. sake I do not want to talk <laughs> why do I have to I don't want to Speaking of new words and adult conversations, I wanted to also make a point that's slightly off topic, but I think it's important. Um, when you as a parent are having a conversation with your daughter or son about sex or, you know, about any, you know, topics related to that, I think it's really important um, for them to know the appropriate words for human anatomy um, in those areas. I mean, we've made very sure from birth that our, our two-year-old knows that 
she has a vagina and men have peanut peanuts, she says, but close enough. Um, so <laughs> I love it. I love it. Incredibly important. Um, <clears throat> not only for when a child, you know, a child or an adult becomes sexually active and they're comfortable using those words when they explain having certain symptoms to their doctor, but God forbid if they are ever in a situation um, where they are assaulted or something of that sort and they have to speak to a cop or a judge or a jury, um, it's really important for them to use words that everyone can understand rather than hoo-ha or my jewels or you know other things like that because I've seen cases actually um, I've not had to participate in them, but some of my colleagues have even shared, you know, being expert witnesses in cases like this with four or five-year-old little girls, and they've been thrown out because the child cannot, you know, vocalize with appropriate words what really happened to them. So I just wanted to make that point. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Felicia. That is really important and definitely something that we want our listening audience to remember. Um, before we touch, at least touch on the topic of ADHD, because I feel like we can't have a back to school talk without looking at that, because there's so many children who've been diagnosed with that and are treated for that. I want to touch on one thing. Dr. Sand mentioned on the yard and, um, and some college student level things. And so just because your child is going off to college doesn't mean that, okay, they're 18, I'm done. You need to make sure that they also have their, health, their appropriate health assessments and are armed with information about what to do when you're not there to tell them what to do. And it just so happens that our Dr. Nicole has written a book on this topic, and I want her to speak to how to get your child ready to live outside of your home and be responsible for their own health care. Thank you. Yes, so I have a rising college sophomore I also have an older daughter who has graduated from college, and I'm a pediatrician and a mom, obviously. So, yeah, last year, as, my, as we were preparing my youngest daughter to go off to school, I just started, you know, making her do certain things, certain tasks, like get, picking up her own prescription, making her own doctor's appointment. And we did, like, kind of mock conversations about how she should, you know, communicate with doctors. And as I was kind of prepping her, I realized that every child – needs this information. And so I can say, even as a pediatrician, we don't prepare our patients for that transition. There really is no formal process in place. So they don't get this information in most doctor's offices. They don't get this information um, in school. You know, they don't get it at student orientation. So I did write a book um, to address that. And just briefly, brief shameless plug, the book is Healthcare Navigation 101, a guide for college-bound students and parents. If you just go to Amazon and type in Healthcare Navigation 101, you will see the book has a black and green cover. So yeah, I think some of the most important things in the book and that I want to address on this episode are just what Dr. Anika said. You know, we, we all know as adults that the healthcare system is incredibly confusing and complicated, and many of us have a difficult time getting doctors to listen to us um, getting doctors to take us seriously and getting the care that we need. And yet, you know, we do this for our kids. As parents, we advocate appropriately for our kids for the first 17 to 18 years of their lives. We are the ones deciding whether they're sick enough to go to the doctor or not. 
We're the ones figuring out what over-the-counter medications are appropriate. We're telling them how much of that medication to take. We're scheduling their appointments. We're making sure that they've had all their vaccines, et cetera, et cetera. And even in the office, we tend to be the ones speaking up for them and, and really providing that crucial medical history. And then they turn 17, 18, and we drop them off on a college campus and be like, peace. <laughs> and we think that they're going to be able to do these things on their own. And guys, they cannot. Like, they are woefully ill-prepared. And so a couple of things, a couple of tips. One of the most important things you can do this summer before you send your kid off to college, and this is whether they're a freshman or a senior, is to make sure that they know their health history. Many of our kids, you know, they don't remember that they had a surgery when they were two or four. They don't remember that, um, you know, they had some type of procedure. They don't, they may not be familiar with their allergies because we parents have been great at making sure that the doctors know that information. So while it may be in their chart in your pediatrician's office or in your family doctor's office, that information is not going to be available if they go to a local urgent care in their college town. So you need to make sure that they know the medications that they're allergic to. They need to know their past medical history, any illnesses that they used to have, any surgeries that they've had in the past. They need to be uh, aware of the medications that they take, the doses, the names of the medications that they take. And they also need to know their family history. You know, um, our community, particularly in, in Black community, we sometimes don't like to talk about um, not only mental illness, but physical illnesses. And, and our kids need to know that heart disease runs in the family. Our kids need to know that, you know, uncle so-and-so uh, committed suicide because mental illness is very, very prevalent among young adults. And some of them will have their first uh, episode of depression or anxiety while they are in college. And so they need to be empowered with that information. So um, in the book, it, you, there's access to a very comprehensive document that you can download where you sit down with your child and you guys go through all of the information so that they can record that, save it in their phone, and then when they're in the student health clinic, when they're in urgent care, or God forbid, if they have to go to the ER, they have that information at their fingertips. So sit down with your child and make sure that they know their health history um, another tip is really just making sure that they know how to communicate. You know, we, we already had an episode about cell phones and how that has really impaired communication. And so many of our students, many of our kids don't really know how to have a face-to-face -face conversation with medical providers and they need to learn how to communicate and how to express the problems that they're having, how to talk about the symptoms. So there are chapters in the book that literally go through the entire history, all the questions that doctors tend to ask and tips for the kids so that they can communicate effectively. Um, one other quick thing is that parents, you need to make sure that your health insurance uh, provides coverage out of state. So many of you may have health insurance plans that will not provide effective coverage when your child is out of state. And so either you're gonna get a huge medical bill for services that you thought would be covered, or you, the, the services, um, your child may not be able to receive certain services and certain care that they need because of a lack of insurance. 
Um, many of the colleges are forcing parents to purchase their own health insurance policy. We had to do that because our, our insurance doesn't provide non-emergency coverage out of state. So these are just a few of the things that are in the book. So again, I encourage you, if you have a child going back to college or starting college, or even if you have a high school senior, um, go to Amazon, check out Healthcare Navigation 101. Now listen, how many nuggets that she just dropped that you had no idea about? I am a whole doctor and I hadn't thought about half of that stuff. I have a niece who is going off to North Carolina a and no, I'm sorry, she's gonna kill me, North Carolina Central in the fall and she will absolutely have this book. So I don't think you can go wrong if you have kids going to college uh, using this as a guide to help you know how to equip them. Um, now, we are wrapping up soon, but I feel like we have to at least mention ADHD. And I'd love to get um, both Dr. Felicia and Dr. Nicole to give us some quick thoughts on if you think your child may have ADHD, if you think they may have difficulty concentrating, who should they see and what would you recommend? Sure, I'll chime in. Um, when it comes to ADHD, I'll be frank, it can be a rather complicated diagnosis to make. Um, it requires a lot of coordination um, from the parent, the teacher, and the doctor. In general, when a patient of mine has ADHD, interestingly enough, most of the time the thought originated from one of, that, one of the children's teachers um, in most cases because they're seeing the child more than anyone trying to perform, concentrate, uh, you know, deal with a difficult task um, throughout the day. And so if your child's teacher brings up that point, I would not ignore it. I think that it's important to pursue um, that possibility. Usually it means um, your child's teacher or multiple teachers will fill out a certain questionnaire and then um, you would bring that to the doctor. The parent also completes a questionnaire um, if I'm not mistaken, if depending on the age, the child can also complete something, and then the doctor will complete a questionnaire. And it depends on whether or not your family doctor or pediatrician uh, is comfortable managing ADHD. Not every doctor is. Um, and so you may need to see a particular specialist, an ADHD specialist or a psychiatrist specifically, um, but that would be the first uh, steps. And um, there are many ways to manage it. Uh, it can certainly be managed with medication for a lot of people. Um, I take a little bit of a different hat in some ways, and we've been able to help people uh, with certain, you know, looking for vitamin deficiencies and supplements that, uh, you know, might not be thought of immediately. And so I think that that's important too. If you might not want your child on medication for ADHD, don't let them suffer. Uh, but pursue another option if that's possible as well. Great advice, Dr. Felicia. Dr. Nicole, do you have anything to add to that? Um, no, not really. I think it is, um, like, like Dr. Felicia said, I think, you know, the key is that it really is a multidisciplinary approach. And I, back in my primary care days, I know that many parents would kind of get discouraged with all of the steps that it takes. You know, they would want to just be able to come in and say, my child is, you know, failing and, the teacher thinks he has ADHD and I want medication. And, you know, the reality is that, you know, diag this diagnosis has really exploded um, over the last, you know, 10, 15 years. And, you know, I'm not going to say that 
people are necessarily being misdiagnosed, but you know, there is a question as to whether it's being overdiagnosed. And, you know, I agree with Dr. Felicia. I think that, you know, we definitely as parents need to take a step back and also think more about like prevention. You know, we, again, the cell phone, you know, there's so many distractions. Our kids aren't getting enough sleep. Our kids aren't, their diet is inappropriate. Sugar, sugar. Yeah, lots of sugar. So there's a lot of things that I think are contributing to, you know, probably what we could call an epidemic of sorts. But I think the key is if you do, if you, if your child is demonstrating signs and symptoms, you know, then you really do need to start with your primary care doctor and stay the course, you know, don't just don't go for the complaint and then not follow through with the questionnaires, you know, you have to follow up with the teacher. Um, And so many parents just kind of get, you know, distressed with the whole process. And I get it. We're busy. The last thing you guys want to be doing is going back and forth and having multiple appointments. Just to address quickly what Dr. Felicia said, you know, I know in the pediatric world, you really do have to be comfortable with this. You know, there's a shortage of mental health professionals in general, and certainly mental health professionals who treat children. And so it really is no longer acceptable for a pediatrician to not be comfortable managing ADD and ADHD. So, you know, I, I, I definitely struggled with it in my early days of practice, but now, you know, I think the expectation is that a pediatrician should at least be able to start kind of the frontline therapy. And then, you know, if you have a child who is not responding to, you know, some of the first line therapy, then of course you may need to refer them to a mental health professional. But, you know, there just aren't enough psychiatrists and psychologists out here to treat children. And so, you know, really you should be able to at least get started with your primary care doctor. Love those points, ladies. Thanks so much for speaking to that. There are so many topics we can talk about concerning our children and back to school, even learning disabilities. We don't have time for all of that during this show, but if that's something that you're interested in and you'd like to hear our perspectives on, then drop us a line in our Facebook, on our Facebook page um, and let us know or comment in the comments after the podcast. If you listen and let us know, we'll absolutely try to honor that. It has been a pleasure being with you and spending some time with you on today. And we really know that all of us want to see our kids successful. We want to give them the absolute best foundation that we can to have a wonderful school year. And so we have just given you a few tips that will help them from the non-academic perspective, perform in their academics, and also to excel in sports and do so safely. We're going to ask you to please subscribe to our podcast so you don't ever miss an episode because what you hear may change your life. We also are very active on Instagram and Facebook. Just look for us as The Real Rx or at The Real Rx. We'd love to have you follow us and get helpful tips throughout the week so that you can live your best life. Um, so if any of our ladies have parting thoughts, I will open up the floor to that. I am seeing none. All hearts and minds are clear. We have enjoyed this episode with you. And thanks so much for listening to The Real Rx.